to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Loopmont, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Today on By Any Means Necessary, we're talking about the developments in Afghanistan and what they portend for the country and the region, the state of voting rights in the U.S. with recent efforts to pass legislation to protect the vote, and the recent earthquake and aftershocks in Haiti and the Caribbean, and how U.S. imperialism and capitalism contributed to the instability of the country's politics and infrastructure. And later in our show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on, have you ever seen a movie called Charlie Wilson's War? Well, it tells the story of U.S. Representative from Texas, Charlie Wilson, and CIA operative Gust Avrakatos and their work together to implement Operation Cyclone a program to organize to support the Afghan Mujahideen during the Soviet-Afghan War. You know the Mujahideen, right? They were the Afghan guerrilla fighters who fought against the Soviet army that deployed to Afghanistan to defend the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan's government during that war. And the war was the result of a power struggle created when the last King of Afghanistan, Mohammad Zahir Shah, established a constitutional monarchy under which the House of the People was to have 216 elected members and the House of the Elders was to have 84 members, one-third elected by the people, one-third appointed by the king, and one-third elected indirectly by new provincial assemblies. Elections to fill the seats saw candidates with platforms that ran the ideological gamut from fundamentalist Islam to Marxism, which is what the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, or the PDPA, were. But the king refused to implement constitutionally guaranteed policies that stalled the implementation of the very political processes that he guaranteed in the Constitution that he wrote which resulted in a power struggle, which the PDPA won in a coup they backed that installed Mohammed Daoud Khan as president in 1973, dissolving the monarchy and the constitution. But then Khan filled his cabinet not with PDPA members who helped him overthrow Zahir Shah, but with sycophants, friends, and even some members of the former royal party. And of course, members of the PDPA didn't like this. So, of course, they cooed Daoud Khan five years later in 1978 and established the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, or the DRA. The Mujahideen arose from mostly rural Afghans who had more traditional cultures and practices. So they were in opposition to the Marxist government whose policies included eliminating usury, ensuring equal rights for women, instituting land reforms because they disrupted the centuries-long traditional cultures in the more remote areas of the country. And they also didn't want to be controlled by the Soviet Union, which was in line with Afghanistan's long history of non-alignment with any nation, although the PDPA was careful not to call themselves communists or Marxists. They called themselves democratic socialists or just 
socialists and declared that they adhered to Afghan nationalism, Islamic principles, socioeconomic justice, non-alignment in foreign affairs, and respect for all agreements and treaties signed by the previous Afghan governments. But the Mujahideen were not convinced and they organized a rebel force against the PDPA-led government. And at this point, the government did request help from the Soviet Union to control the growing rebel opposition, often brutally. And that is how the Red Army became mired in a losing war in Afghanistan for nine years. Now back to Representative Charlie Wilson. It was Operation Cyclone initiated by Representative Wilson that armed the Mujahideen against the Soviet army. And of course, this wasn't done because Wilson thought the Afghans had a right to self-determination. He did it because they were fighting against a communist government and the Cold War enemies of the U.S., the Soviet Union. Oh, Wilson claimed that he was moved to help the Afghan rebels after he visited a refugee camp in Pakistan and saw the Afghani children with their hands blown off from Soviet mines. But I don't buy that. Because as Operation Cyclone was growing, Selig Harrison, former journalist for The Washington Post and author of five books on U.S.-Asian affairs, said that he met with CIA leaders who told him, quote, these people were fanatical and the more fierce they were, the more fiercely they would fight the Soviets. But that he warned these very CIA officials that he met with that the U.S. was creating a monster. Of course, they didn't listen. And the Taliban emerged from this larger group of Mujahideen framed in Western media as Muslim recruits from any and every Islamic school, in effect smearing madrasas, which are just Islamic schools, and Islam itself as training grounds for terrorism. But in truth, many leaders of the Taliban were on the payroll of the Inter-Services Intelligence, the ISI, the intelligence wing of the Pakistani government. And you know who ISI were buddies with and funded by, don't you? The CIA. So the U.S. funneled money to agents of the fanatical Pakistani secret police, basically, who became the Taliban. Now, because of Charlie Wilson's lobbying for arms for the Mujahideen, the CIA's anti-communism budget grew from $5 million to over $500 million during that time and was a significant impetus behind the Reagan doctrine through which the U.S. armed anti-communist movements around the world. But when the Soviets were finally driven out of Afghanistan in 1989, what happened? Civil war. That's what happened. Even as the Soviet army was gradually withdrawing forces from the country, where was the U.S. and Charlie Wilson and all that aid? It was non-existent. After the Soviet army withdrew, the U.S. left other entities to clean up the mess they funded in the country. Charlie Wilson and the CIA didn't care that the money and the weapons they poured into arming the Mujahideen were now being used on Afghan civilians by those same groups. Oh, the movie tries to paint Wilson as trying to lobby Congress to help the Afghans after the war, but I don't buy that either. Because you mean to tell me that one man can make the CIA spend $500 million to arm rebels in another country, but he can't get a few hundred million, maybe even a few million to rebuild some roads? Get out of here. So the Taliban, being the major organized, funded, and armed force among the Mujahideen, ultimately took control 
of approximately three-quarters of Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001 in the vacuum left by the Soviet army and U.S. assistance of the Mujahideen against it, and they brutalized women, children, destroyed religious artifacts, and oppressed religious and ethnic minorities the whole time. I don't think that part is in the movie. And Charlie Wilson and the United States and the CIA did nothing until a month after the attacks on the U.S. on September 11, 2001, when George W. Bush invaded Afghanistan. Now, 20 years later, the Biden State Department emphatically denies that the embassy evacuation fiasco is absolutely not like Saigon, which is absolutely arguable because it absolutely is, while simultaneously making clear why the U.S. military went into Afghanistan 20 years ago. Quote, we went with one mission in mind, and that was to deal with the people who attacked us on 9-11, and that mission has been successful. End quote. All the talk about protecting Afghani women and children that emerged after 2001 and much of it floating around now is deeply suspect to me because who cared about those people between 1996 and 2001? Do we believe that 20 years of U.S.-led war was good for Afghani women and children? Was it good for them that the U.S. armed the Mujahideen and left them to fight for control of those women and children in the towns and cities they lived in with the Stinger missiles and other military hardware that the U.S. dumped into the country to fight the Soviets? Of course, women and children are in danger in Afghanistan. Of course, the Taliban are monsters. And it's entirely possible that they will be just as brutal as they were before. And yes, the U.S. has used and abandoned the Afghani people twice now in less than 50 years. But considering the fact that the U.S. is largely responsible for the existence of the Taliban in the first place, I hardly think we should be expecting them to fix what they broke, especially since they refuse to admit what they've done at all. And then they have the gall to call the horror they've created a success. Oh, the movie Charlie Wilson's War, starring Tom Hanks, by the way, it's a comedy drama. Think about that. Hollywood thought that this whole thing was funny. Are you laughing? Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. You are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we are going to move on from discussing some of the history of Afghanistan to moving into the implications of the current developments. And we are happy to be joined for that discussion by Sohrab Aslami, a doctoral candidate at Syracuse University in the Department of Geography and the Environment. Sohrab, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I I am just fascinated with the similarities between what is happening in Afghanistan today to what happened in Afghanistan 20 years ago uh, before the U.S. invaded, but particularly the similarities, the striking similarities between the U.S. evacuation of the American employees at the embassy from Afghanistan and Saigon. So, 
you know, I, I'm as you saw the developments uh, rapidly occur this weekend, so Rob, I'm just wondering what your initial thoughts are about the way the United States handled the evacuation and the attempts that they at least advertised to uh, evacuate Afghan nationals who aided the U.S. military, the the translators and such. But we don't know how successful that's been. Well, what are your thoughts about the way it has all unfolded? Well, I think the way it's unfolding now um, is very much of the last 20 years of military occupation of Afghanistan. And that is to say that I think what we see now um, is 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 a sort of a, uh, is very clearly an embarrassment for the United States, um, and, and, it, and it's as I say an emblematic of a sort of a historic failure uh, in Afghanistan. That after trillions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer dollars spent on the military occupation uh, of Afghanistan, uh, after uh, so much has been put into propping up. Uh, what you know has effectively been a uh, a puppet government of the United States. Um, after all of this, after the uh, more importantly, after the thousands and uh, and tens of thousands uh, of lives, of Afghan lives lost, and the the countless more um, millions of Afghans displaced, uh, maimed, um, and 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 adversely affected through this occupation, um, that what we see now is probably the only uh, expected outcome of such a disastrous occupation of the country, which is that it appears to us very um, uh, unprepared, very bungling, and, 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 and like I say, very embarrassing. Um, it, it, would be, it would almost be comedic uh, if, if, if the stakes for the Afghan people weren't so high, if, if um, as we see now, for instance, at the uh, airports of Afghanistan, of, of Kabul, uh, uh, a part of which um, reports indicate the United, United States uh, military personnel still have control over, uh, the scenes are, are heart-wrenching and harrowing. Um, there, there has been reports of um, Afghans uh, trying to hold on to the tires of uh, military, of U.S. military uh, airplanes as they fly off, falling to their death. Um, you know, scores and scores of Afghans trying to flee the country. Um, you know, th- this is all taking place, of course, too, uh, only uh, weeks after uh, the United States and, uh, and top officials gave their assurances that it was uh, no, there was that, that, that there was no guarantee that the current or um, previous government, I should say, now uh, would collapse. Um, you know, I, I, that all, all of this is to say that I think, you know, it, it's very emblematic of the, of the failure and arrogance um, that has defined um, the, the U.S. Uh, occupation of Afghanistan over the last 20 years. And you mentioned the cost. Let's put that in, you know, numbers. Between 2002 and 2020, the United States spent approximately billion. Now, that's just the money that was documented. We, of course, know that there were literal pallets and suitcases of cash that the CIA uh, gave to different factions in the country to appease them for their purposes that 
was unaccounted for. We have no idea really how much that was in terms of the human cost through April of 2020, uh, 2,448 U.S. service members, 3,800 U.S. contractors, 66,000 Afghan national military and police, almost 50,000 Afghan civilians, 47,245 400 aid workers, 72 journalists. I mean, now, so Rob, after all of that cost, after all of that loss, the United States leaves Afghanistan in shame under the cover of yet another crushing military loss, but they also leave the country to the government that they claimed they were fighting. The Taliban. So, I mean, what does that speak to in regard to the the U.S. occupation and war in Afghanistan, the the narrative that they were there to defend women and children against the Taliban, and the fact that throughout the occupation, the United States even tried to negotiate with the Taliban and even did so as they were uh, withdrawing over the past few days, asking the Taliban not to attack the U.S. embassy. What does it say about the United States government uh, and military apparatus that it is handing the country back over to quite literally, let's be clear here, the terrorist organization that they helped create? Absolutely. And, and you know, I think it, it shows uh, the real emptiness of all of these humanitarian promises that were used as excuses for the uh, military invasion and occupation uh, of Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, um, you had mentioned the uh, pallets of money, uh, you know, uh, being uh, given to uh, the, the, you know, officials and, and, and so on in Afghanistan. Um, you know this this trend, uh, you know, has has only continued. I mean, it, it, uh, it reports indicate that as the um, uh, president Ashraf Ghani was leaving um, uh, Kabul uh, in haste, um, what would be uh, last night or the day before, uh, that his officials and um, you know uh, uh, defense ministers were also leaving with pallets of cash and. Uh, and, and cars and cargo filled with um, cash. Um, you know, uh, it's 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 one thing to um, see now uh, the way that the U.S. government is uh, completely abandoning uh, whatever um, uh, you know sorry excuses they were giving for uh, justifying uh, the military occupation of Afghanistan. But it's another to 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 see how the government that they had propped up. So um, ineffectively um, has has completely dissolved. Um, you know, uh, th- there is uh, it, it's kind of shocking uh, to have witnessed uh, the 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 just the sheer um, uh, speed and expediency with which the Taliban took over uh, essentially the country, um, and uh, you know, more or less peaceably. Uh, that is that there there was the the resistance to the Taliban as they were sweeping through district after district. Um, they, you had uh, you know uh, uh, Afghan military uh, forces uh, 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 leaving their posts, uh, 
you know, uh, refusing to continue fight, not out of any allegiance to the Taliban, uh, but because there was no uh, will to defend the, the, the current government, that it was that the corruption and um, dishonesty and disservice to the people was so widespread and well known that there was uh, little to defend. And for that reason, not again, that is any allegiance or preference for the Taliban, which as you say, is a, a, a very fundamentalist, uh, reactionary, uh, frankly, terrorist organization, um, that, uh, you know, th that they were able to take over so quickly because uh, the people have uh, zero uh, desire to defend a government that has never met their needs, that has never, uh, 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 has never um, you know, invested the money, the, the, the sheer uh, abundance of money that they were receiving through foreign assistance, uh, never invested that in the people. And so um, what we see now is uh, a, a change in, uh, you know, a transition of power, uh, but one that means almost very little for the Afghan people. Uh, under the previous now previous government, the Afghan people suffered, and they will continue to do so uh, under the new one. Um, and 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 that is uh, again um, not through any fault of their own. It is a direct result of uh, not just even the last 20 years of U.S. military failed uh, U.S. military occupation of Afghanistan, but the last um, uh, uh, few decades of U.S. military interference and, and covert uh, uh, operations in Afghanistan, beginning even in the late 70s, um, by some indications, uh, even prior to the uh, socialist revolution, the socialist sour revolution uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, so this is, uh, this is um, you know, uh, all to say that what we see now in Afghanistan um, uh, it, it sh it is, is a is a shame, but mostly it is a shame that is uh, 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 that, that for which uh, that U.S. military officials, U.S. Uh, uh, military uh, generals, uh, and those in the Pentagon have direct responsibility for. Uh, and they're, they're, frankly, the blood uh, of of the Afghan people and the continued suffering of the Afghan people uh, is is in their hands. I mean, this is something that the American people should be up in arms about. Uh, you know, to, to try and 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 prosecute these these criminals, frankly, in the Pentagon for what they have. And the fact out. that you said, Sorob, that you know the government that was there before the Taliban has taken over again uh, wasn't meeting the needs of the people. That is incredibly important, I think, in this conversation that we are having, especially those of us. Uh, on the left, us leftists here in the United States who are, you know, rightfully very, very concerned and, and, and quite afraid, honestly, about the Taliban and what they will do to Afghani women, children, uh, the elderly and, you know, everyone in society. And we we are afraid of that, of course, because of what they did in 1996 to 2001 when they controlled three fourths of Afghanistan and the United States pretty much didn't care that they were abusing women and executing women in the streets who disobeyed their fundamentalist, brutal fundamentalist rules and outlawing music and, and destroying cultural artifacts and, and oppressing religious and ethnic minorities and the like. But the truth also is that the U.S.-backed government 
has not provided any support, relief, assistance to the people of Afghanistan the entire time that the United States has occupied the country. And as a matter of fact, when we want to talk dollars, out of the over, let's just round it up to a trillion, probably more than that, dollars that the United States spent in Afghanistan between 2002 and 2020, only $131 billion of that was spent on any kind of reconstruction efforts that benefited the people. And that didn't even come directly from the U.S. government. It was distributed through various aid agencies. So when the State Department claims surprise at how quickly the Taliban took over. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, it's certainly the case that the speed with which cities fell was much greater than anyone anticipated, including the Afghans. I mean, could they really have been that clueless? Or was, I I get the feeling, Saurabh, that there was no way they didn't know that the government they propped up really was not strong enough to withhold any challenge because because of the corruption. But but that's my my perspective. But I'm wondering what you think of that. Uh, I completely agree with you. And if we need evidence of that, uh, we need only look at the um, uh, I believe the, the, the Washington papers uh, that were released by The Washington Post, uh, which had a number of documents uh, detailing uh, the very um, uh, the very clear awareness on the part of Americans um, as to the corruption, the scale of corruption and ineptitude of the um, of the Afghan government. Um, they've long known for a long time, and and I think that uh, uh, that what we are seeing now is a sort of um, a reconciliation of that by U.S. officials uh, now that it's manifest for everyone. Um, it's no longer a secret that is um, that, that that this you know the, the, the former government now former government was uh, uh, utterly corrupt. Um, you know I I think that when we think about uh, to address your point about the um, the Taliban, I think that uh, 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 yes, uh, I think that uh, we are already seeing um, in some cases in different districts uh, a return to uh, what was. Uh, you know, normal practice under the Taliban government 20 years ago, and that is that uh, there is a um, that is that, that there is a uh, 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 that women are not allowed to freely uh, uh, go out and leave their homes. That there is a censorship um, on uh, the various things in public. Um, there is a sort of a return to that. At the same time, we can also see that uh, in, uh, that that in this transition back to uh, what seems to be a Taliban-led government, um, that the people of Afghanistan are not just passively or idly sitting by. That in fact, today we can see uh, there have been demonstrations by women in Kabul uh, 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 voicing very loudly uh, and with with um, with emphasis their this. Their uh, distaste and 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 uh, and concern about the Taliban, and that they are not there to just sort of accept uh, what what is happening, but but to try to change it. Uh, these things, these these demonstrations, though are few and far between now, um, nonetheless give us a sense of uh, of of the agency of the people there. Um, at the same time, we should also 
uh, try to remind ourselves um, uh, that the conditions of the transition that we see now are slightly different as well uh, from those of 20 years ago. That in the last 20 years, while we can look at the failure of the U.S. military occupation, we can also observe the relative uh, success of, uh, um, uh, of Taliban governance over those territories which they have maintained some level of control. Um, by some uh, figures, uh, the Taliban have managed, uh, I believe, in the last 10 years to control uh, what is effectively 20% of uh, GDP in the country, um, that the economy over which they have control, that is um, the collection of what were once unofficial taxes, uh, the sale of uh, coal and other uh, minerals uh, from Afghanistan, as well as the sale of opium, uh, equals about $1.2 billion. Um, they've also indicated in numerous talks over the last couple of years that they are desiring to change uh, their behavior. Uh, all of these may seem very shallow and may prove to be very shallow and, and empty statements. Um, but at the same time, uh, we have to understand that um, the Taliban uh, cannot simply isolate or alienate themselves from the world economy. Uh, that they know very well, um, as they have uh, proved themselves to be rather shrewd managers um, over the last of, of their of their economy over which they control over the last uh, ten years or so, um, that they they need uh, major direct foreign investment in Afghanistan. Seventy um, percent, it is indicated as of uh, uh, five years ago, seventy percent of uh, the GDP of Afghanistan is made up through international assistance um, and. If anything, the Taliban have proven that they have a very strong sense of self-preservation and to cut themselves off so um, uh, quickly uh, would, would, would from the global economy and that foreign assistance would prove very fatal. Uh, and I think that we can also see uh, through some of the discussions they've had with, uh, uh, with um, China, with Russia, with Iran, uh, these countries having sort of accepted or recognized in some form the uh, the government of the Taliban and the sovereignty of their uh, government, um, that the Taliban are, are, are ready to try and create an atmosphere under their terms, which are brutal, reactionary, far uh, right wing, uh, but still under their under their terms for uh, for for creating an opportunity for uh, 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 investment in the country. And I think that in so in so doing, we can kind of expect that. The, the Taliban will not isolate or alienate themselves from uh, 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 the rest of the world. Um, whether that means improvement, whether that means a, uh, uh, a, 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 um, a divergence from their past of uh, brutally repressing women and, and, and segregating uh, 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 men and women in public and, and beating women, I mean, all of these horrible, wretched things that they are um, uh, they, they are known for. Uh, whether it means that they will uh, no longer do these things, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't think that will be the case. But at the same time, we kind of have to understand that the conditions for this transition are distinct and, and somewhat different from uh, those of the past. The, the, the stakes uh, for the new government, uh, uh, for the new Taliban government, it would seem, in Afghanistan uh, are, are, are different.
Yeah, absolutely. The world is absolutely watching and watching intently as the conditions in Afghanistan continue to emerge and transform. But we are out of time. We want to thank Sohrab Aslami so much for joining us for this very important discussion. But we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukemont, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about the developments in voting rights with the goings-on in trying to pass some recent voting rights legislation. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Greg Pallast, investigative reporter and author of several New York Times bestsellers, including The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you again. I am glad that you are with us also, Greg, because I want your top of the line, top of your head thoughts about Joe Manchin and his influence in watering down the voting rights bill, the For the People Act. Now, some on the progressive side would say, well, Manchin didn't do so much damage to the bill. It's better than nothing. But what are your thoughts about Manchin's impact on the bill and the measures that he managed to get stripped out so that he could vote for it? Well, I think that the the main issue is that Manchin keeps saying that you can't have a bill on voting rights without a bipartisan agreement. That means you're asking Republicans to agree to a bill that would eliminate Republicans. I'm sorry. I remember when Joe Biden ran uh, during the primaries for this presidential race, said he had nothing against desegregating and and busing in schools, against desegregation of schools, as long as it was voluntary. So you have to ask the racist, is it okay with you if we desegregate your schools? You have to ask the Republicans, is it okay if we have fair elections? And if we do, by the way, if we let people of color vote, you're out of office. No, I don't think so. It's... um, uh, you know, as uh, General Westmoreland once said, uh, when you got them by this, uh, by the cojones, their hearts and minds will follow. I'm sorry, you don't ask the perpetrators of what is actually a crime, stopping people from voting. Ask the criminals if it's okay if you um, outlaw the crime. Sorry, I don't buy it. So his, so his basic premise is, I won't back anything that isn't backed by Republicans, is a, is a con. It's a complete con. And it doesn't help his people in West Virginia either. Remember, he's supposed to be representing the people of West Virginia. I don't see that. He's representing the money behind his campaign. And that's a, that's a serious uh, problem. So, I, you know, in general, his basic premise is just dead wrong, that, that somehow voting rights should be bipartisan, include the people who are basically people who have gotten in office by committing the crime, the crime of stopping people of color from voting. I'm sorry that that doesn't uh, that doesn't work for me. 
Yeah, especially since Manchin is opposed to the changes that the original bill would have made to the Federal Election Commission, which oversees campaign finance reform regulations. The original bill would have added one more commissioner to the six-member commission panel. Three usually vote along Democratic lines. Three usually vote along Republican lines. There's terrible gridlock. One additional commissioner would have ended that gridlock. Manchin doesn't want that. Uh, He also is opposed to ending vote by mail restrictions. He doesn't want to stop local election officials from keeping voter rolls so that they can purge them. I mean, Manchin sounds like a Republican (laughs) to me. Um, And I I wonder if if these are the measures that were that he managed to to get taken out of the For the People Act, what's left and what does that legislation do to protect voting rights? Well, I mean, there are some protections still in the bill. And as they say, it's better than nothing, but not a lot better than nothing. One of the problems is is enforcement. The Federal Election Commission, which is also about money. Um, Look, Manchin doesn't want anyone looking into the money he's getting. So by um, saying, let's not, we have a crazy system in which we have an agency that has three Democrats, three Republicans. So as you can imagine, now the Republicans have become completely obstreperous. They don't care what the violation is. Um, They're not going to act. So basically you have a a non-commission. When you say you're not going to add a member to the commission, you're basically saying eliminate the commission. It won't oversee anything, including your money, Joe Manchin. He knows that. He's protecting himself. He's not protecting voters. He's not protecting people in West Virginia. Um, you know, and um, that, you know, that's just the beginning of the story. Now, I, you know, let's, by the way, let's, let's make it clear. Before the People Act, or H.R. 1, is no miracle. It, it had some, it, it did not take care of some of the major problems that we're facing in, uh, in voter rolls, including the purging of voter rolls. The number one way that voters of color are um, knocked out of the voting system is by these mass purges. For those who read my uh, book or see my, you know, uh, see my material, Best Democracy Money Can Buy, for years I've, I've talked about that the main issue is not whether you can get a pizza while you're standing in line. But the main issue is the removal of voters from the voter rolls. 14 million people were, re- were removed from the voter rolls before the last election. I was in Georgia uh, most of the time. And even though uh, Biden won by a, by a, a you know, hair uh, 12,000 votes and you had um, Democrats, John Ossoff and uh, Reverend Warnock win the Senate races, those should have been walkaways. Um, the Republican Party eliminated a third of a million voters from the voter rolls that um, our experts calculated. I was working with ACLU and Black Voters Matter, calculated those voters should never have been removed. A third of a million voters, that included Martin Luther King's 92-year-old cousin, was removed from the voter rolls on cockamamie grounds. That would not be, uh, I don't see any protection within the the H.R. 1. So it's not like it's some type of miracle bill and everything is solved. But Manchin took what little there was like a functioning Federal Elections Commission, and has basically said, I'm not voting for it unless um, you stop this stuff. Because, you know, look, he's also protecting his own seat, but mainly his own sources of funding. And I'm very concerned about that. I think actually the John Lewis bill, which is having even a greater uh, struggle, is probably the more important of the two voting rights bills. And I don't think Manchin is even going to allow 
the Senate to touch that one. The John Lewis bill would basically restore the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And that's crucial. Wow. Wow. And this is all happening at a time when the census results have been released. And, you know, even though the Latinx population has grown, that has actually proven to be maybe a windfall for the Republicans in states like Texas, because they gain additional seats in the House because of their increased population. Now, that doesn't mean that those people are necessarily conservative. That's just the numbers. And and how do you see the census being used in, in this way to advance conservative politics or being used by conservatives to advance their political aspirations in a way that we don't see Democrats using the same tools, Greg. Well, I think that um, actually this also even connects back to H.R. 1, which has anti-gerrymandering laws. Gerrymandering is where you take, um, you do what's called stacking and cracking. Let me explain to people how this works. What you, you take, like, let's say you have a population of Latinx voters uh, near Houston. You jam, either you stack them, that is, you, you take every Latinx voter you, you draw the lines block by block, house by blo- house, to get all the Latinx voters jammed into one single district where they have 80, 90 percent uh, Latinx voters. And then all the, you know, the four surrounding districts now become whiter and more Republican. And that way, the, so you get one Hispanic seat, but then you get four white seats, even though if you just simply drew the lines in, a, in an even and fair way, it would probably be end up, you know, three two Democratic. So that's called stacking. The other is cracking, where you take the Hispanic population, say uh, near Austin or something, and and you divide it up into like you slice up a district in in say Austin itself into six different uh, congressional districts. Now the people in Austin have zero power; their vo- their vote is diluted. So it's cracking and stacking are the tricks. Now the thing is. Big states like California, Democratic states, have laws, as I do. I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles. We have a law here that where a nonpartisan commission controlled by judges draws fair lines. The GOP is allergic to that. They know if you just let people vote, they're in real, real trouble. Now, the census has the ironic effect, as you said. So you'll see a huge increase in the Hispanic population in Arizona, Texas, Florida, other states. That gives them more congressional seats. But then the stackers and crackers, the gerrymander crowd in the GOP, then uses that extra population, that extra seat that they get to um, actually shaft the populations that are growing right. by you know stacking and cracking those new those new demographics. And they use you know it's. You know, what's really cool is they use the new census data to actually redraw those lines to hurt the people whose citizen population is growing. Right. That is the catch-22 of so-called bipartisan politics in this country. But unfortunately, we are out of time. And we want to thank Greg Pallast so much for joining us. You can find more information from Greg Pallast on gregpallast.com. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary.
to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. And today we are having an update on the developments in Haiti. And we're happy to be joined for this discussion by Tunde Osazua. He is the coordinator of the U.S. Out of Africa Network, a project of the Black Alliance for Peace. Tunde, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're so glad to have you because, you know, the death toll from the earthquake that shook the Caribbean nation of Haiti this weekend rose to nearly 1,300. Authorities have said and government officials have sought aid from the U.S. and asked for first responders. And this is before Tropical Depression Grace is now bearing down with heavy rains that's forecast for today, and that's threatening to complicate any relief efforts. Now, Haiti's Public Works Ministry has dispatched 55 rescue teams, and that's composed of military and civil protection personnel for search and rescue efforts. But clearly, it wasn't enough. It's not enough. Haiti is such a damaged country, and it is not because of some ridiculous curse, because I know that some folks in the Christian community always trot out that trope that Haiti is cursed, and that's why these kinds of things keep happening to them. But what really has kept happening to Haiti, Tunde, is imperialism. So can you give us an update on the developments for relief efforts in Haiti and the political implications of U.S. involvement that has contributed to the inability of the country to defend itself, even from natural disasters? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, the devastation uh, in Haiti right now is heartbreaking. Um, you know, what, we've, what we'll see is that the earthquake will allow uh, the consolidation of power by the neocolonial stooges uh, installed by, uh, by, you know, the international community, so like the U.S., the U.N., and all of those folks. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what we saw immediately after the earthquake is that Biden authorized an immediate U.S. response uh, and named the USAID Administrator Samantha Power as the senior U.S. official to coordinate the efforts. So, you know, uh, they, they had Southcom establish a joint task force um, uh, on August 15th, the day after the earthquake, to conduct U.S. military operations in support of U.S. foreign disaster assistance. And, um you know, it's just a militarized response led by Southcom. It, uh, what we saw after the 2010 earthquake was that the Obama administration uh, took over Haiti's airspace and sent a 22,268-strong uh, military force and surrounded the island with 23 Navy ships, 10 Coast Guard cutters. Um, and, you know, Southcom began like an Operation Vigilant Sentry to stop Haitians from leaving the island in the name of security. So, you know, it, it, this militarized response is never a positive, um, I guess, development for, for the Haitian people. Uh, and and um, I think what uh, we, we've seen just generally, right, is that the Haitian self-determination has been, you know, stomped all over. Uh, and I, I think um, after uh, what we saw after uh, uh, Moise died was that 
the, the, the international community, that being the U.S., the U.N., the core group, uh, um, and, uh, and uh, the other, uh, I guess, white rulers were able to put in place their own leadership in Haiti. And so I think uh, this, this is just a continuation of strengthening that, the power of that, that leadership that they've, that they've uh, installed in, in, in Haiti. So um, I, I would point to, uh, you know, uh, that, that ongoing legacy, right? Like we, we know that Haiti is the first free black republic uh, in the Americas, and, and, and they've really been punished for that, right? Like folks talk about being, it being a curse, but it's really, you know, just the result of imperialism and, 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 the, and the backlash, right, against uh, the Haitian revolution. Uh, because, you know, what we've seen is that, um, you know, Haiti's been, been, uh, uh, been made to suffer as a result. Uh, that They've been unable to build their own uh, infrastructure. It has the most privatized social service sector in the Americas. I think back in 2010, they were talking about how something like 80% of the country's basic social services were provided by the private sector through NGOs, um, and which is more, and it had more uh, NGOs than any other country in the world per capita. Um, and I, I don't think much, much of that has changed, right? And I think that the earthquake uh, will continue this trend, right? Like we'll see organizations uh, from, from outside come in and try to provide their aid, which is, you know, another source of neocolonialism, right? Like, I think ter- charity in the third world is uh, uh, like a softer side of, um, of, export- of, of the system of exploitation that is, is um, plaguing, plaguing Haiti and other third world countries. So um, what, what we need to see is the U.S., you know, end its military occupation, that the U.N. end its military occupation of Haiti. Uh, and and that they allow for, um, uh, I guess, uh, uh, the end to police training and funding of, of secu- uh, security forces in Haiti, Haiti uh, and and that they halt all deportations, uh, right? Like I, I was speaking earlier about how the Southcom response in 2010 led to, um, you know, folks not being able to leave the, the country. I, I think we we should also you know call for. Uh, public hearings on the U.S. and the core groups imperialist meddling in Haiti, because I think that's the real source of the problems there. Obviously, they have all these disasters. Uh, uh, just, I mean, we have disasters here in the United States, but uh, the way that imperialism and neocolonialism are, are operating now is, is only going to lead to more ruin and disaster and um, uh, just the dependence of, of the Haitian, uh, uh, I guess, system on, on outsiders. Uh, so uh, I think, uh, you know, what, what, what we're seeing is, is just a continuation of um, that, that, uh, that arrangement in, in which uh, the West is, is benefiting from um, all of these, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, neocolonial, neocolonial relationships. And, and, and that, that's what we need, need to see in M2. Um, and so that could even mean, you know, having ongoing discussions, right, with... Um, with the Haitian people as far as what, what needs they have, short-term and long-term. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's how I would touch on that first question you asked, uh, Jackie. Yeah, absolutely, because I, I think it's important for us to point out that what this sounds like, at least to me, is another form of imperialism. It's imperialism just the same, but it's taken the form of imperialism under the guise of humanitarian aid. And I, I, I would like to call it 
humanitarian imperialism with a militaristic twist. And in the country uh, like Haiti that has experienced this second massive earthquake, this earthquake was actually stronger than the one in 2010, but it caused less damage to the country because it was farther away from the country's shores. But there have been at least 1,297 deaths. More than 5,700 people have been injured. More than 27,000 homes damaged or destroyed. But the aid that the United States gives is coordinated by USAID, Southcom, military restrictions on leaving. I mean, this sounds a lot like what the United States did after the 2010 earthquake, except for in 2010, there was a lot of so-called humanitarian aid from organizations like the Red Cross and other NGOs. But how did that work out for the Haitian people? And what role did that response from the United States play in, again, the Haitian people not being able to protect themselves or prepare for natural disasters like the earthquake and that they are experiencing right now with the tropical storm? That's a great question. I think, uh, like you said, right, uh, in 2010, just like right now, the scale of of the uh, the disaster caused by the earthquake uh, flooded um, or, or prompted a flood of humanitarian aid and, like you were saying, humanitarian imperialism and, and led to, like, the nickname that Haiti garnered, uh, like, Republic of NGOs. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, in the Red Cross example, right, like, they they, they uh, were able to raise half a billion dollars. Um, and uh, a lot of that money was squandered. Uh, they... Uh, they claim to launch all these different projects. For example, uh, they, they launched one uh, project to build housing in, in some areas that really needed it. Um, the project was called LAMICA, the Red Cross Launches Project, uh, which is uh, an acronym in Creole for a better life in my neighborhood. And they were supposed to be building uh, a lot of, you know, permanent homes. Uh, and, you know, they built uh Few to, few to none, uh, few, uh, very few homes, much less than they promised. Um, and so a lot of the residents in the, in the neighborhoods where they claim to have been building these homes are still living in shacks um, uh, without access to drinkable water, electricity, or sanitation. So essentially the Red Cross made a lot of promises that they did not keep uh, in terms of, you know, their, their aid. And uh, there's all these, um, uh, I guess, uh, all these other NGOs, they're uh, also, you know, not providing solutions. Uh, uh, there's tons of money sent to short-term aid aid groups that were uh, not equipped to engage in, uh, like, longer-term uh, projects. So, you know, we were just talking about the housing situation. Um, uh, and so I think, uh, you know, they, they built a lot of shelters in 2010, and uh, those shelters weren't built to last, and so that they deteriorated and Funding uh, dried up for a lot of the tent camps. I think I think what we uh, what we saw was that you know homelessness uh, began to rise. So you know the prevalence of these NGOs, these aid groups, uh, really is is holding Haiti back from developing its own institutions. Uh, and in a lot of time, like they, they talked about how the United States provided hundreds of millions of dollars in aid 
uh, back in 2010, and I think they're planning to do uh, some, something similar, uh, maybe maybe a little less this time. But a lot of, the, the Haitian government receives, you know, less than one percent, or received less than one percent back in 2010. And um, uh, I think you know when when the government doesn't have the infrastructure, when the government isn't really serving the people, which I think is is the case in in Haiti, the government is really uh, acting in its own interests and. Um, you know the interests of, of the of their uh, white masters, their uh, imperialist, uh, I guess, uh, masters. The 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 aid doesn't really do what it, it needs to do. I think the big call in Haiti has been, you know, to to be able to, uh, you know, build towards having free and fair elections that are, you know, um, free from outside interference, whether that be from the U.S. or or the French. Or, or the or the core group, and so I think you know what what we haven't seen with the aid is that it's really going to the people who need it, right? Like uh, they said that in 2010, uh, the the spending on aid from the U.S. was 379 million, uh, and 42 cents went for disaster resistance, 33 cents for U.S. military aid, nine cents for food, uh, nine cents, and that that's for each dollar, and nine cents or five cents going to Haitian survivors less than one cent to the government. So I think watching the aid flow um, shows the, the alliance of the Haitian elite and foreign investors um, to keep, keep Haiti good for business interests, but like, you know, uh, keep very poor um, living conditions for the average Haitian. Uh, so yeah, the, the U.S. really just wants to keep Haiti good for business and the, the work of like groups like the Red Cross that really used the half a billion dollars to shore up some of their deficits. Like I, I think just in a, uh, their, their uh, finances, they were able to, to help uh, erase any, any deficits they had uh, and, and, and not really help out the, the, uh, the um, situation that the average, the average Haitian. So I, I think we, we want folks to be aware that there's a lack of accountability to the, to the Haitian people on behalf of these foreign NGOs that are getting the vast majority of this aid that they don't really understand the Haitian situation, the Haitian culture. And instead of using their aid money to empower and employ or just help the Haitian people, they often have highly paid staffers who aren't Haitian. So what we saw in 2010 was mismanagement and a wasting of funds that was pledged for relief. And we'll probably see the same. Absolutely. We definitely have to watch where we are sending our support, making sure that it's going to Haiti and not to another U.S.-backed NGO or for-profit claiming to be not-for-profit charity. But we are out of time for this segment, and we are at the end of the hour. We want to thank Tunde Osazewa so much for joining us and giving us an update on this topic. But we will be back for a second hour right after this. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back. Please join by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. The movement, the world is moving too fast for me right now. But you know what? Ah, Luta, continue up, my friends. It is Monday, 
August 16th, the struggle does indeed continue. I am Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman, as I said. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, you'll be able to give us a call and tell us whatever is on your mind. Ask us whatever is burning in your heart that you want to know from us. But that is not the only way that you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary. Oh, no. Our allies, accomplices, and comrades can reach out and touch us here at the show. Of course, course, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour, I should announce that President Joseph Biden is expected to make an announcement today somewhere around 345. So we may preempt the show for that. He may be late. Let's hope he is because I am so happy and excited to be joined by Dr. Richard Wolf, economist and professor at the New School University and author of the new book, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or itself. Dr. Wolf, so happy to have you on. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I am probably more glad than you are because, boy, do I want to pick your brain about everything that is going on in the economy in regard to Biden's policies, the eviction moratorium. Now there is talk about the extended student loan payment pause. Let me start there, Dr. Wolf. Let me start with your thoughts on Biden's policy, his proposed policy to extend the student loan payment freeze until January 31st or through January 31st that would extend emergency relief for millions of borrowers. I'm one of them. um, And that's set to expire next month. Now, the Biden administration said that this would be the final extension of the pause, but more than 40 million borrowers have federally held loans, and during the moratorium, they've been interest-free and not subject to repayment or penalties or non-payment. Now, here's the thing, Dr. Wolf. This is a freeze on repaying the loans. The extension, the the moratorium on paying the loans will be extended until January 31st. This doesn't sound like canceling student debt to me. What are your thoughts about Biden's tactics? And do you think he's moving toward canceling student debts or, or, or am I getting my hopes up here? Well, I wish I had better news for you, but I'm afraid you kind of know the answer. Yeah, you're getting your hopes up. My feeling is that uh, he, like his predecessors, kicks this uh, pathetic can down the road. Yeah, now you have a few more months to agonize over what you do 
once that money keeps being pulled out of whatever little bit you have saved to cover that uh, cost, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame to have burdened our young generation with debt to go to college. You know, in other societies, and I'll mention a couple of them in a minute, it's considered to be a blessing for the community if there are people able and willing to spend a few years to get better educated, to get their skills up, to get their understanding of how to be productive in the world developed, that we're all going to benefit if you're educated because you're going to do a better job at whatever, you know, wherever your passions take you. Uh, you're going to have more to contribute. You've learned more. You know more. In other words, it's an investment that the whole community will benefit from, and you, and you want to honor the people who do that. Uh, you don't want to give them an enormous extra burden that they have to come up with tens of thousands of dollars in loans to pay for all of this, that they then graduate with that, uh, you know, that burden hanging over their heads. How am I going to pay for this? How am I going to live a life now that jobs are harder to come by, uh, more precarious? The last thing on earth, earth that we need a young generation of, of school kids uh, to have is a debt. I mean, let me give you the example of Germany. In many ways, Germany is the U.S. of Europe. It's the most dynamic, the wealthiest, uh, the largest economy in Europe. And here's the policy in that country, which, by the way, is an ally of the United States. In Germany, as I'm speaking, there, the cost of tuition at any university is zero. The fees students have to pay at any university, zero. The only cost a student has to bear if he or she goes to a German university is what you would have spent anyway, namely your room and board. You have to find and pay for a place to live, an apartment with friends or whatever, and you have to pay for your food. But there are no costs of education. And not only does the German government make this available to every German citizen, hold on to your hat, it's available to anyone. For example, Americans, you want to get a college degree without spending money, without accumulating debt, go to Germany. You can enroll there as an American, uh, no fees, no tuition. Why? Because in Germany, the idea is simple. We will be a more effective economy in the world. We will compete better. We will produce a better quality of life for our people. The more education the people working in our society have. And so we're not going to do anything to slow that down or to or make people think, let me not go to school because I don't want to burden myself with debts. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to make education free. By the way, there's a half a dozen other European countries that have done pretty much the same. So the United States is way behind. And not only that, it doesn't even in this time of difficulty for young people particularly, all it can do is kick the can down the road. It can't even get rid of the debts. It, it has to, you know, penny ante kind of, oh, I'll give you a little, you know, 5,000 or 10,000, but you'll keep the bulk of the rest of it or we'll kick it down the road and then we'll scare you by telling you it won't be forgiven. 
um, ever, and we're only going to do it one more time till January. I mean, these these are these are signs of a society in very deep trouble. And you know, one last point. I understand, in a way, Mr. Biden's difficulty. He's like the person who's painted themselves into a corner of the room and now can't get out with getting their, without getting their feet covered with the paint they just put down. If you forgive the debt of college students, what do you say to the people who borrowed money to get a car because they have to have a car to get from their home to their job? And so there would be no way to live without a car. What do you say to people who have you know, been paying their mortgages off and, and suffered because they had to scrape the money together to pay the mortgage or to pay the rent? If you're forgiving a college student, what, what is the college student worth more than the homeowner, the car owner, the person who's loaded up on credit card debt because they're helping to take care of their, their family? I mean, you know, if you relieve one group of debtors, you got to kind of think about what you're saying to all the others. Not that that's an excuse, but it shows you the economy is in terrible shape where it can't help anybody because it really ought to be helping everybody. And it can't do that without finally taking the money from the people who actually have it, which is the super rich who don't want to give it up. You know, these are the signs of a system that is coming to a not so happy end. Yeah, you know, I like the point you made, Dr. Wolf, about other people who have had to take out loans to do other things that they need to do to survive. And I think that is like one of the chief contradictions of capitalism and the excuses capitalists like Joseph Biden and liberals and Democrats who support these kinds of kick the can down the road policies make in continuing to prop up the system that is exploitative of people. I mean, it's a pretty logical argument. It's like, wait, if it was this easy for you to cancel this type of debt, why do I have to pay this other type of debt? You mean we had this money all along? And it's that question, I think, Dr. Wolf, that 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 the capitalists really don't want people to ever ask, because the answer really is right there. We just spent, I don't know how many trillions of dollars in Afghanistan in a war that, I mean, I I hate the fact that we're even talking about winning wars because that's obscene on its face. But just the fact that we spent so much money, this government spent so much money in Afghanistan, that could have canceled everybody's student loan debts in this country and our grandkids for a couple of generations, probably. Absolutely. I mean, I think... I think you're right to bring it up. I think this society has brought these issues on. I mean, let's be real honest for a minute. Uh, Your program is honest, and so it's a good time for me to say this. We have just, and there's no nice way to say this, so I'm not going to waste anybody's time. We've just come off of two 20-year wars, one in Afghanistan and one in Iraq. And the United States has been defeated in both of them. And let's be honest, we are one of the richest countries in the world. And Afghanistan and Iraq are among the absolutely poorest countries in the world. And the biggest, richest country with the most powerful military just got defeated by two very poor 
militarily virtually unarmed populations. I mean, this to think that this is a, a detail or it has to do with some bad decision this general made or that politician, you're misunderstanding. This is a very, very profound moment in American history, which will be useful if it's a wake-up call, if it makes us understand. It's a little bit like COVID, which is the same story. Here we are, the United States is 4.5% of the population of the world. 4.5% of the world's people live in this country. But we have 20% of the deaths from COVID. Wow, one of the richest countries in the world with a well-developed medical system is an immensely poor performer in the war against this virus. I mean, to have either of these events happen, the lost wars in Afghanistan or Iraq, or the lost war against COVID, to have either of them should be a wake-up call. But to have both of them at the same time, I mean, only a person who really is deep into denial could walk away from these realities and not think there is something very basically uh, wrong in this system. Yeah. And I just want to be clear, Dr. Wolf, you know, we're not saying that, you know, Biden was backed into a corner because we're trying to defend the guy. He backed himself into a corner because he wanted to be elected by people who he knew were already hurting economically, but he knew he wasn't going to do anything to ease those people's economic woes. So he had to tell them some things to get them to vote for him. And now he is in the corner he backed himself into by not doing things. Yeah, you know, and, and he could have, you know, just like uh, Trump before him, he could have taken all kinds of steps he chose not to take. He made his political calculations. Uh, and of course, like most American politicians, when he makes those calculations and they come back to fight him in the rear end, he'll go blame somebody else. Uh, that's what those guys seem to, to specialize in doing. But I, I don't want to get into the blame game. I, I think there's a lot of blame to go around. I'm not interested in deciding who gets a bit more, who gets a bit less. I'm interested in figuring out what is it that has made this society function in this way. It just spent over $1 trillion over 20 years to lose a country like, in a country like Afghanistan against unspeakably poor, underdeveloped people. And that money, you're right, that would have erased the student debt uh, over these years. It would, uh, it would have put an entire generation, 40 million Americans on a much better economic footing than they are now. And what have we got to show for it? I'm not even talking about the 2,500 dead American uh, military people or the tens of thousands that came back wounded physically and mentally or the hundreds of thousands uh, of people in Afghanistan whose lives were shattered. I mean, what have we done? You know, if this happens to you or me as an individual, Hopefully, we would stop and ask some pretty tough questions about what we've been doing with ourselves. But as a nation, I'm afraid we're not going to do it. We're going to have to follow these politicians into blaming each other or wasting our time in other pursuits 
rather than facing the problem of a system that works like this. Yeah. And and I do think because you all know that I love history and I want to ask you about some of the history that went into Germany having the system that it does that you told us about just in, in terms of education at the top of our interview, because I do think that's important in the economic realities of American citizens right now. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour. We're going to pick this up when we come back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. I'm Jackie Lukeman. Please stay tuned. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, my friends, 202-521-1320, 202-521-1320. I'm Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Professor Richard, I'm sorry, by Dr. Richard Wolf, who is also a professor. And I have to tell you, Dr. Wolf, my nickname for you, because I love your economic analysis and uh, listen to your podcast very often. My nickname for you is our favorite Marxist economist uncle. There you go. I just wanted to tell you that. That's very sweet. Thank you. <laughs> so I was very interested in the history behind Germany's ability to provide the kinds of opportunities like free education, not just to Germans, but also to Americans. If we were able to go to Germany and enroll in college, we could get a free education too. And doesn't that come from the Marshall Plan, which was implemented by the United States to rebuild Germany after it destroyed it during World War II? So, If that is true, Dr. Wolf, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that the Marshall Plan did provide a foundation for some of Germany's current economic policies, then why is it that we haven't been able to get the same kind of policies here in this country? This government could do it for Germany after it went to war with Germany, but couldn't, well, wouldn't do it for us. At all. Yeah, I think you're raising a very, very good question. You are right. Uh, The Marshall Plan that helped to rebuild Germany after uh, World War II did find its way in part to rebuilding its educational system as well. Uh, To be fair to the Germans, uh, their culture emphasizes education rather more than many others do and has done that for a very, very long time. Uh, People in Germany are told that an education is uh, a gift. It is something that if you can qualify in terms of of reading and writing and being able to to learn uh, is something that uh, it's a gift in you and it's a gift that the society wants to develop Uh, and it therefore doesn't want to put an obstacle in your in your path. Education is free. It has been free in Germany for a long time. But unlike the United States, the Germans always understood if education is valuable, which we believe it is, 
and then it should be free, but not just free in kindergarten and elementary school and junior high and senior high, but why in the world does it stop at the 12th grade? If you want to go on and get more education, well, we, the government, ought to be here to enable you to do that because it's good for everybody. The more you can load up with understanding of how the world works, with skills of all kinds, with ability to communicate what you've learned to other people. Uh, again, as I said before, this is considered something that should be encouraged. And that's why you don't do, you know, uh, what we've done in this country. And let me tell you, it's relatively recent here. When my first job as a young professor just starting out, I chose to go to work. Uh, my first job was at the City University of New York. Uh, and that was back, oh, 1970s. And in the 1970s, the University of New York was free. There was no tuition, That's like right. Germany. There were no school fees, like Germany. All that a a young person in New York City had to do was cover his or her uh, food and clothing and, and, and wherever you lived, but you didn't have to pay to go to school. And the city of New York was very proud to have the only free college education in the United States. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. The city university isn't free anymore. It is relatively easy to get scholarship help here, but it isn't free and nowhere else in the country is uh, either. And, and I think that's, it's not just that it's a shame. You know what this is? This is what people used to call shooting yourself in the foot. In other words, this is self-destructive. Any economist worth his or her salt will tell you that the United States is now a competitor in the world. We have to compete against Europeans, against the Chinese, and on and on. And Nothing is more important to our economic future than the quantity and the quality of the young people getting college educations in the United States. It's not the only important thing, but there's nothing that's more important than that. So why are we throwing obstacles in the way? I mean, we're not giving people enough money to go to school, so they have to borrow. But there's, you know, that, that's not necessary. Give them free education or give them enough salary so they can afford it. But don't put them in the impossible situation of having to foreclose their own education and all that that could contribute to our community uh, in order to load them up with loans. I mean, it is short-sighted in the extreme. And, you know, Mr. Biden and his, and his advice, they should be ashamed of themselves presiding over a system uh, like this. And, you know, and if other people complain that they want their debts reduced, well, I think they should be able to make their cases and that we should be thinking about that as well. These debts should not have been accumulated. The only reason people borrow to buy a home or to buy a car is because they don't have enough money to do it any other way. And yet we make it necessary. How are you going to live? How are you going to have a job if you don't have an address, if you don't have an automobile? And, and, and so it's it's a kind of torture in a society to put people in need and then deny them the means to meet those needs. Mm. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and you know, just to be clear, when we're talking about countries like Germany and other European nations that have some aspects of socialism or democratic socialism, we also have to look at their relationship to their former African and other colonies because the same benefits usually don't extend to the people in those colonies. And I'm thinking of Nambia. I think in 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 regard to Germany in particular and the Herero people who are still suing Germany for reparations for the atrocities that were committed against them. So when we talk about European socialism or European democratic socialist policies, we, we do have to be very careful that we're not excluding the imperialism and the settler colonialism of those very same countries, because that's the other way they benefited and accumulated some of that wealth that they were able to spread around in the quote-unquote mother country, but didn't extend those benefits to the colonies. But we have a caller on the line, Tarif Simon. Tell us what's on your mind. First free journalist science, hands off Haiti. I'd like to say something. Um, I got two comments. My first comment is with Haiti. If, so, if, one, if, if a, a group of people, a person want to donate to Haiti, what website to go to? And also, if a group of people or a person want to go to Haiti and help out, what website to go to? What is the main organizations you deal with? Well, the help go directly to Haiti. Okay, that's my first comment, which was a question. My, my last um, comment is dealing with what happened in Afghanistan, the total collapse, and now the United States is out of um, Eurasia. There's no more playing around it in, in, in anymore. So, um, if the Taliban decide to pull what Iran did back in the late seventies and take some hostages, then it's going to send a, that's going to send another uh, chilling effect throughout the world because you know they're going to use them as basically bargaining chips for the prisoners at Guantanamo uh, Bay. So, and John Kirby just came out saying it's not going to be no more evacuations of military and civilian because you got people on the tarmac now. So. Yeah, it's it's really messed up over there. You know, I really feel sorry for the people over there, but I hope the Taliban don't commit no mass genocide against these people. That's all I want to say. All right. Thank you so much for your call, Tarif. We appreciate your hope to hear from you again soon. And we have another caller on the line, Baltimore Charles. Tell us what's on your mind. Good afternoon, my friends. Uh, I appreciate you and uh, the information that you uh, are bringing to uh the nation and as such just a couple of comments on the uh uh the education system in this country uh just like everything else it's been marketized commodified and monetized uh and so uh i guess that's what uh, capitalism brings us uh on the uh afghanistan situation there is one winner uh which uh, people have uh, uh failed to uh mentioned, and that's the military-industrial complex. Um, uh, They have uh, fed themselves very, very well uh, at at the table uh, through the selling of arms and uh, uh, all kinds of uh, military implements uh, in uh, that uh, place called Afghanistan. Uh, What in the world were we thinking when we went there to a nation 
that is has been known to be the graveyard of the empires. Uh, it just befuddles the mind uh, as to uh, how we would have the the, the gall and the hubris uh, to to think that uh, we uh, can go anywhere in the world and uh, become a policeman. But I don't think it's a, it's been about that, and I don't think it was about terrorism. I think it was uh, uh, more about uh, either natural getting those mineral resources, uh, or getting a uh, hold of the Silk Road, the Silk Road uh, uh, system uh, that uh, carries commodities through that uh, that region from one country to the other. Or, or the pipeline land, but almost certainly uh, it was not to uh, free us of, uh, of terrorism. Uh, and uh, I think that people uh, should uh, uh, come to a hard reality that, uh, that that was the case. But it is something to be said about a people who see themselves as uncomparable. You know, in the, in the word of Rambo, uh, or the colonel who uh, uh, was the uh, officer over Rambo, those people uh, in Afghanistan can can uh, survive and eat things uh, that would make a billy goat puke puke while they're living in their caves uh, and surviving uh, all kinds of uh, uh, terror and uh, explosions going on around them. So. Uh, Hip, hip, hooray, America. You did it again. Thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you so much, Charles. Good to hear from you. As always, hope to hear from you again soon. Dr. Wolf, what are your thoughts on either one of our callers? Well, I'd like to pick up on a point that the last caller made about the the real catastrophe in Afghanistan. Actually, two points that he made. The first one, he's absolutely right. And I appreciate that he took the time to, to add that to our conversation. Yeah, 2,500 American military were killed and tens of thousands hurt and hundreds of thousands of Afghanistani people, men, women, and particularly children. Uh, Horrible, just horrible. But there was a smile on the face of all the people who produced the unspeakable number of missiles and bombs and planes and guns and bullets and all the rest. That's what most of that trillion bucks went for all the hardware, shipping the soldiers and the equipment over there, building the military bases that the Taliban has now taken over and overrun. Uh, Much of that money that was made was very profitable by the military industrial capitalists in the United States. For them, endless war, whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq, that's business. That's sales they can make. Every time the military uses up something and has to replace it, they get a new order for something. So for them, let's be real honest, their interest isn't in peace. Their interest is in the continuation of what makes them able to sell the military hardware that they're in the business to produce. And for them, the sad news is it's over. And the one in Iraq, by the way, for those who don't pay attention, let me assure you, that's on the verge of being over, too. Yes. may not get over in the same way as Afghanistan. We may not see the same sort of uh, headlines or pictures on television. 
But that war is over, and the United States has lost that one uh, also. And finally, I think, look, here's the best example, and it's ironic. It's the United States, the great British Empire, at its peak at the end of the 18th century, could not be bothered with this little poor colony that they had called in, that, in those days British North America, later to be known as the United States. And when the colonists here, you know, Massachusetts farmers and small craftsmen, when they made up a, a ragtag little military and claimed they were going to make a revolution against the British Empire, all the politicians and generals in London laughed. Yeah, but they were wrong. Those farmers who also often lived in the countryside and lived on very little proved themselves able to defeat the most developed army and navy in the world at that time. So, you know, we haven't learned not just from Afghanistan history. We haven't learned from our own history. Every empire in the past was born, evolved, and eventually died. The empire of the United States in the world was born, has evolved, and now the next phase is decline. In my judgment, it's already here. And the failure against Afghanistan, and the failure against Iraq, and the failure against COVID, these are signs of a system in decline. And I say that not because I take any pleasure in it, I don't, but because we got to understand where we are or else we're going to go down even faster and that's not good news for anybody. Yeah, that's definitely not good for the working class and the poor, especially working class, poor black and brown people in this country and and not internationally either. But, you know, I want to say a couple of things to our callers. Thanks to folks in the chat for answering Tarif's question. Haiti Action Committee is one organization to hook up with to provide direct aid to Haiti and also Haiti Emergency Relief Fund. These are reputable organizations that the reputable folks in the chat who uh, I can vouch for personally have vouched for themselves. And I have to say, the reference to Rambo, first of all, I don't like calling Afghanistan the graveyard of imperialism, because to me, that sounds like you are calling a country full of human beings a graveyard. And that kind of, that just doesn't sit well with me. I, I understand what the sentiment is, but I don't like using that reference. I think we have to be really careful that when we're talking about the demise of imperialist regimes through people centered struggle, then that's what we should call it. And let's not create these catchy phrases that takes the self determination, the struggle, and the action of the people who defeated the regimes out of the equation. So I, I, I feel like I had to say that. And, and the Rambo reference. <laughs> Saying that, you know, folks, and I understand it was from a movie and and but you got to understand how xenophobic, Islamophobic, racist, imperialist Hollywood really is. And Rambo was no different. So for this commander in the Rambo movie to say that 
you know, the Afghan people are eating things that would make a rat puke while they're living in their cages is just I I I don't other than calling people names that I can't repeat on the air, that's kind of the most Islamic phobic, racist kind of denigrating thing you could say about the people of Afghanistan. And and I don't that doesn't sound like a compliment to me. So you know, I, I think that we can we can celebrate the tenacity of the Afghan people to survive not just 20 years of imperialist war from the U.S., but the years of U.S. intervention in their country before then to fight the Soviet Union that was invited in to defend the leftist government for, what, 10, 15 years before that. I think we can just say that the Afghan people are serious about struggling for their self-determination and not, quote, racist and xenophobic and Islamophobic characters in Hollywood movies to make that point. And I think if we can do that, we'd be better off. But we have to move to another break. We will be right back with Dr. Richard Wolf. This is Jackie Lukeman. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. We will be back. Stay tuned. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. I am back, my friends, and I do have to remind you that we are waiting for President Joseph Robinette Biden to make some kind of announcements. And I'm kind of mad because he is going to probably preempt the time that we have with you, Dr. Wolf. I think this is unfair, but this is how things go. So I just have to make that announcement in case we do get preempted and we have to go live to that press conference. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, while we have the time, Dr. Wolf, what your thoughts are on the eviction moratorium, the Biden eviction moratorium. I feel like it's a scattershot effort and it is not, of course, is not anywhere what we need. We need the rents to be canceled. We need back rents to be paid, you know, that kind of thing. But do you think that this new moratorium from the Biden administration will end up helping the private property developers that are swooping in, buying up property that people are getting evicted from in the long run? What do you think it's going to do more harm than good? I think it's already doing more harm than good. And I'm aghast at it. You know, it's a torture for people to be thrown out of their home. And it's only slightly less of a torture to be told, well, we're not going to throw you out this month, but next month or the month after that or three months from now. Because let's remember two things that people forget. When there's a moratorium like this, people, even those who have been paying their rent, a growing number stop because they're under pressure. They don't really have enough money. And if you know you're not going to be evicted, well, it's very tempting to take care of all your other debts. So the amount of rent in arrears that you're going to be charged is going up, which means the longer you kick it down the road, the bigger the problem when finally you can't kick it anymore. 
Number two, landlords cannot evict you, but they can charge interest for the month, the time that you haven't paid, and they can assess penalties. So there's going to be a lot of people that discover that the rent they think they owe is less than what they're going to be told because of the legal right the landlords have to add interest and penalties to the outstanding rent, only making the problem worse. Look, let me put it as a simple economist would put it. Housing is one of the most basic human rights, the right to enough food to sustain your body, the amount, the right to clothing so that you are warm in the winter, et cetera, et cetera, and can protect your body. And finally, a place to, to sleep, a place to live, a place uh, to have a family and all the rest. Uh, a successful economy is an economy that gives people enough income to afford to buy food, clothing, and shelter. We live in a society where we can see in the streets of our cities the homeless people. And the homeless people are people who either don't get enough money to pay for housing or discover that the money they earned isn't enough to afford the housing. Either way, the system is broken. It's not succeeding in doing one of the most basic things. We have millions of people facing eviction. And we already know, and let me make that clear to people listening, there are what are called vulture funds. These are big uh, funds of money, including some of the largest investment funds in the United States, in the world, that are busily scooping up all kinds of housing from the people that are losing them. I'm going to give you two examples. One you've already mentioned, the people facing eviction. And they're doing clever little things, like they're going to people who are facing eviction and saying, look, uh, uh, I've got to deal with your landlord. If you leave now, uh, you won't have to pay your rental that you owe them or only half of it, and we will pick it up because we are going to be buying all these houses. That's going on. Another story, just to give you an idea, is that all over the country, investment co companies are buying up mobile home parks in order to jack up the rent they charge for the people living in a trailer. And those people are now facing evictions because they often can't pay the higher price for the land on which their trailer sits. I mean, you're, you are destroying homes. You are creating investment opportunities for the richest people in the society. It's, it's, a, it's an illustration of where this system is disintegrating. Instead of reversing the inequality, it's working to make the inequality even worse. And for me, again, like losing the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, like the pathetic performance on COVID, these are more and more signs of a society spinning out of control in its own decline. Yeah, spinning out of control is exactly how it looks and how it feels. And in a weird way, uh, Dr. Wolf, you know, the, the landlords who claim that they're so you know, they need money so bad, they're going bankrupt, they can't pay their own bills. Well, you know, 
the Supreme Court, and thanks, Deha Cole, for the correction on the information you gave me. It was not the New York Supreme Court that sided with the landlords in New York. It was the U.S. Supreme Court that sided with the landlords. I mean, landlords could very well help their tenants who owe this money to them navigate the system to get the money that would go to them. But instead, they're just suing to kick people out. So, I mean, I I feel like this is there is not a better example of why landlords and property ownership is at the root of capitalist exploitation and rot than what's going on right now, Dr. Wolf. Yeah, you know, let me do it even another way, get the point across. The United States government over the last 15 years, starting with the the so-called Great Recession of 2008 and now with the collapse of last year and this year, has dished out trillions of dollars to banks, to investors, uh, to, to the stock market, and so on. If you really wanted to help, go to the uh, landlords of this country, who are a relatively small number relative to the renters in this country, who are a very large number. The majority are renters, not the, not the landlords. And say to the landlords, okay, uh, you're not going to get rent for a certain number of months because we have to help the people going through this COVID disaster, going through the unemployment we're suffering, and we're going to help them by canceling their rent. Now, we understand that makes a bit of a difficulty for you as the landlord. So you apply to us, and we will find ways of aiding you with one or another tax advantage or maybe a subsidy. This can be done. It's been done for other groups. Why in the world is it not done for that? In 2008 and 9, the federal government bailed out all the biggest banks in the United States, spent a lot more money on that than it would take to help mom and pop landlords, you know, the people who have two or three or four apartments in their house or something like that. That could be done. And then you would have helped the mass of people with a rent of relief, and then you could deal with the people for whom that was a problem. You know, it, it's there are solutions even within this broken system, but you have to have some sense of the community to do it, and we don't. The people at the top, the richest, they do everything they can to avoid paying taxes. The corporations keep being exposed for all the strategies they have. Well, if you keep doing that, The government hasn't got the resources with which to do anything. And then the problem just keeps getting worse. And we sit here scratching our heads, knowing that somehow, yeah, of course, the problem could be solved. But we're led by a collection of people that are so stuck in the ways this system has always worked that they can't break the mold and they can't solve the problem. Yeah. And and as I'm sitting here, you know, watching the monitor in the engineer's booth, watching the scenes from Afghanistan, watching people literally, Dr. Wolf, climb onto any part of the airplane that is leaving that they can climb onto to leave the country. When the Biden administration says on Anthony Blinken and other State Department and national security agency officials say this situation in Afghanistan is nothing like Saigon. They're lying because I am looking at what it looked like to watch the evacuation of Saigon. Only that was in black and white. That's right. No, I mean, 
we have been told stories. And you know, when empires fall apart, that's what you get. You get the big general with all the medals on his chest, and he's used to giving speeches on the 4th of July about the great achievements of the American, and he just repeats that stuff. That's what he grew up on, that's what he wants to believe, that's what he says. And the, the politicians listen to the generals and say the same thing in a few different words, and we go on and on pretending. Look, I read a lot of European newspapers, British, French, German, and so on. I do it because you get a different sense of what's going on in the world right. because they see it differently. And they have been saying, this is important for your audience to know, they have been saying that the United States lost the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for at least the last two years. I've been reading, it's, in the, it's often on the front page of those stories. They'll have a reporter talking about some city in Afghanistan and explaining that during the day, the United States troops march around. But the minute it's dark, the real power of the town comes out and it's all the Taliban and everybody knows it. It's kind of a play acting to keep the American TV looking the way it wants to. But the reality, completely different. Yeah. And, you know, j just to be clear, the United States got involved in Afghanistan in the first place because of its anti-communist policies. That that really is the basis of it. As I said earlier in the show, the Soviet Union is the Cold War enemy of the United States because, you know, the United States said so. They have a problem with communism because they don't want people to have nice things that are paid for by the government. So the United States saw an opportunity to wage a proxy war against their Cold War enemy. And of course, through the Afghanistan papers that were recently released a couple of years ago, Dr. Wolf, you know, we saw how much money the United States government poured into Afghanistan and how also the U.S. military was guarding opium fields <laughs> because a significant portion of the Taliban's revenues comes from trade and opium. So all of this is connected to our economic fortunes or misfortunes where in this country, you know, we just recently had a jobs report. It's supposedly so rosy and good, but the unemployment numbers for black and Latinx people still twice as high as non-Hispanic white people and wages aren't going up. I mean, what more do we need to make the connections to get people to actually destroy this system, Dr. Wolf? Well, you know, I don't know how much more information we need to get to them. What we need to have people do is be confident in their own senses of what's going on and, and to understand, I wish I didn't have to say this, but that much of what the leading Republican and Democratic politicians tell you is fantasy. Fantasy that they may believe, I don't know. Fantasy they certainly want to believe, but it's just so far removed from the reality. Try to keep in mind, everyone listening, the next time you hear about the glorious exploits of the American military abroad, remember Vietnam, remember the images you see now, because this is the reality. The Taliban, the ostensible enemy of the United States back in 2003 or four, whenever this stuff started, 
is much stronger today than it was back then. 20 years of war, thousands of, of ruined lives, a trillion dollars, and your enemy is stronger than before you started. That is a level of failure that has to burn itself into the consciousness of the American people, because if, it, if you don't, you're just going to make more of these catastrophic mistakes. Yeah, that, I mean, that is absolutely true. And, and, and I do really despise, Dr. Wolf, how even when we discuss a war that we don't want this government to be involved in anymore, we always focus on, you know, the American lives lost. Well, let's not forget, let me go back to my earlier point, that let's not forget that lives in other countries that the United States government and military and intelligence apparatus have infiltrated and have upended. Their lives were destroyed too, many, many more than ours. But I think it just speaks to the indoctrination of imperialism and capitalism and this thing called American exceptionalism, where we in this country, Dr. Wolf, might be appalled at, you know, the amount of money that the United States has spent on an endless war in another country, but we we very rarely bring into that discussion all of the thousands and tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives, really, over the long course of U.S. involvement in this country that have been destroyed, not just ended, but destroyed because of U.S. imperialism. And Dr. Wolf, I, I just would love your, your last words on what we should do in order that this doesn't happen again. So that as the empire crumbles, and I agree, the empire is crumbling, we are on watch to keep another Vietnam, Afghanistan, you know, Somalia, Mali from happening again. Well, I mean, the bottom line for me is this. We've allowed a very small number of people, a very small minority, that focused on profit. These are the people who own the big blocks of shares. These are the people who sit on the boards of directors of the big corporations. These are the people who have the power to locate a factory in China or Brazil or India. They're the ones who make the big decisions. And they're the ones who want the rest of the world to be a source of cheap labor, cheap inputs, and so they create the imperialism. They take over those countries. They run their banks. They make them dependent. And then when things go bad, they're the ones we go to war to protect. If we don't want to be in this position again, we cannot have an economy that begins and ends with a focus on the profitability of corporations. That's what got us into this. And unless we deal with that, we're going to have one Afghanistan after another. That is the sad but true reality of the situation. But we are out of time for today's show. I want to thank Dr. Richard Wolf so much for joining us. You are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm Jackie Lukeman. We'll see you tomorrow. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.